Welcome everyone to another session of Orthopod. I'm here with um, Professor and Chairman of the Department of Orthopedics uh, at PGIMER, Chandigarh, India. Uh, professor uh, and good friend of mine, Mandeep Dillon. Mandeep, how are you? Hi, Mohit. I'm fine. Thank you very much. Nice talking to you over, over the internet rather than meeting with you personally. But we yes, are yes. working with limitations in difficult times. Uh, how is uh, the current crisis in Canada? I know it's not too good in India, but are you guys right. okay there? Well, I mean, Canada is approaching around, you know, just over 80,000 cases um, and with two hotspots. One is in our province, province of Ontario, and we also have another hotspot of cases in Quebec, um, which is another province nearby, our neighboring province. But generally speaking, Canada is in this mindset of the curve is flattened, and we are now beginning to uh, reopen. And that's really where, 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 where the real interesting part comes is because there's still many, many unknowns. The one thing that we learned, Mandeep, though, in this is, and maybe it's a good thing, right? That in many communities, we over-prepared. Uh, we, uh, we had an ex expectation that there would be an influx of cases, um, but those cases actually didn't come. And that's a positive finding, but it has led to concerns about reopening, about saying, well, we've got a backlog of cases now. How do we manage this? How's the situation in India, in India, specifically Chandigarh? Because you're at an institution right now that is a very, very big government hospital system that sees lots and lots of cases. How are you impacted? Yeah, well, we, we actually, very honestly, we also reacted in the same way as the, uh, the Canadians and the international uh, community did. We, in our institute, what we were told suddenly on like day one, everybody get ready. You got to prepare for a huge influx of cases. You've got to vacate the wards. We got to reschedule the duties of the nurses. Our residents, my own residents, and I have a team of 30 junior residents and about 20 senior residents. All of them were retrained to look after cases in the ICU. And we did a lot of things. We All elective surgeries in my institute have been now cancelled and this is the 55th day since we've done any elective surgery 55 wow. days and uh, and um, so we got ready and we converted our teams into five day response teams because five days we thought we'd be exposed to it and then we'll have 10 days off or one week something like that yeah. and then we started and on the first day we got a couple of cases two five seven which were all handed by the internists and blow me if the orthopedic emergencies we got were only two. One was a septic arthritis and one was a child with a supracondylar fracture. Where right. we usually get about 20 emergencies a day, we were down to two. So Mandeep, why though? Like, like so did they, were they just not happening or were people not coming in and they're now they're walking around with malunions or infected fractures or what, what do you think's happening? One of the big things was the lockdown. Yeah. We just did not have any road traffic accidents, which account for 75% of yeah. my, you know, uh, yeah. cases. That yeah. is one. And secondly, uh, any guy who had a small fracture, you know, maybe a colosis or uh, yeah. an ankle fracture, they got themselves treated locally and put into a plaster. And, yeah. you know, maybe get a, a byproduct of that to treat now. Yeah. Uh, the third issue, which I think uh, really went against us getting cases was one new wing of my hospital, 250 beds. 
was converted into a dedicated COVID-19 hospital. Wow. And it was a referral center. So they, they vacated 250 beds, a brand new place, and they trained people and they said that we'll take all the cases who come in the region. It never filled up. We got maximum 20, 25 cases in them. Yeah. And if I look at it in a different perspective, honestly right. speaking, and we were lucky there, we had very few deaths compared to the international community. Our okay. death rate was very, very low. And there's this huge conjecture going around in India that maybe we have some inherent immunity because we get these little bugs left, right, and center, and we right. this theories about the BCG vaccine and things like that. But then again, we were not so sure. If well, you let forget, me ask, let me ask this, Mandeep. Like you know, so one one um, obvious statement around, uh, let's say, example for India. India is saying we have very few infections. One argument, you know, is being used in saying, well, you know, if you can't test everyone, how do you know you don't have all these infections? So, are, is it the mortality that's being used as the gauge to say, listen, if there are very few people dying, and and of those who are dying, we understand that group very well we can go back and extrapolate based on mortalities, how many people would likely be infected. How How is that argument being, I guess, locally um, sought out? Because you know, not everyone's being tested. And one would argue India would have communities in India where, you know, if there was a, a, an infection, it would it could just, you know, completely ravage a whole community because everyone lives in such small, close quarters in many communities. I'm curious if, if that statement's ever been raised and what the response to that has been well we, we we thought that would be the case yeah and very honestly i don't know what is going to happen in the next give us a couple of weeks because what has yeah. happened in india is that we've had pockets even in chandigarh yeah. we had a small pocket of a densely populated area and 40 percent of our cases came from that okay the rest of chandigarh which has you know houses like you have internationally broad yeah. avenues we never had cases coming from there. The only cases we came from the rest of Chandigarh were okay. the international students who came home. They wow. came from England. They came mm -hmm. from, a couple came from Germany. And we had a bunch of tourists who came from Italy. Two, three of them were positive. But most of these, I do agree, are coming from these closely packed communities with almost no possibility of social distancing. Correct, correct, correct. The other big area, if I take it outside Punjab and Chandigarh, I yeah. go to middle of India, Maharashtra, which is mm -hmm. constituted about 40% of India's cases. Right. A large percentage of them is coming out of this slum called Dharavi. Okay. Which is one of the biggest concentrations of humanity. So mm -hmm. that's where it's coming from. And that's where the problem is. But what people do not understand is why so many infections would have gone under the carpet, so to speak. Right. One, of course, is testing. That's one. But if you look at the percentage of people who are positive yeah. and how many of them die, that's a very low number. Okay. Second is, last 10 days, we've had one of the biggest mass migrations taught of war. You know? Wow. About uh, almost a million people want are moving from place A to B. And they're going in closely packed trains, which are specially started for them. They are walking. We had people who walked 100 miles with their families. And they are now increasing the rates of the states which they call home. Uttar Pradesh oh. is one of our biggest states. Right. And now suddenly it's seeming uh, seeing a big boom of cases of people who are going back to the villages and are staying there. 
Yeah. You know, Mandeep, there's a paper that just came out in the Lancet. Well, just meaning in the last few weeks. And they do a very simple model. They say in situations like India, Canada, I mean, quite frankly, any place, the United Kingdom, any place where there's cases, Brazil, for example, right now is being really, really hammered. They say that if you have four people with an infection who end up leaving in one spot and go to another spot, there's an over 50% chance that there will be a large outbreak there. It doesn't take many cases by modeling. Four people can lead to a new outbreak in, in, in another region, which gets me to the question, should India's policy and other policies be very, very careful about you know, interstate uh, you know, migration uh, within the country or inter, you know, even within regions in Chandigarh, keep the people you know, in some places isolated rather than moving around to keep spreading it. I don't know, has that kind of policy even been raised? Because clearly what you're describing is the risk with migration. That's it. That's, that's what the world is seeing right now. Yeah, Mohit, what happened was day one, the Indian government started with exactly this policy. Right. Do not let people move. Yeah. You know, but then there were limitations. They could not supply food to these migrants because they were under the radar. They never came into any census. There were these guys who were living in, you know, shacks and shanties and yeah. they were not registered anywhere. They have no identification. And suddenly they had millions of people who yeah. were screaming for food and water and shelter. And then the government just the machinery broke down. They tried to give some money to them. They tried yeah. to give them food, you know, rations, etc. Yeah. Yeah. But then whenever they would give to a pocket to give, they found that when they took food for a hundred people, there were actually two thousand people there. So mm. this was a big problem, and this rebounded back onto the government very, very badly. So it's been a bit of a political decision not really a medically enforced or medically well thought okay. of decision to allow them to move. All the medics, all the people who, had, who were thinking positively say it shouldn't be done. But then yeah. the poor people say you're taking these decisions in air conditioned rooms and we are sitting out here starving, let us yeah. go home. Yeah, so right. that's right. what happened actually. So now knowing what you know, what do you expect then in the next coming months? I mean, what's the likelihood that, I mean, it seems to me the likelihood of increases in cases is inevitable with this mass migration, because that's going to happen. But from a broader perspective, what does the rest of 2020 look like for you personally in terms of your own practice and travel and all the other things that I think we're all trying to figure out? You know, we're trying to plan what our lives are going to look like. What's, what, <laughs> what's your future vision right now? Well, look, we're looking at me. Uh, I, I'm, I was chairing two courses, yeah. AO courses, one in Australia and one in uh, uh, Madrid. Both of them yeah. are cancelled. Yeah. We are working hard to try to convert them into some kind of virtual meetings with hybrid models. Yes. We are trying to do that. So travel is definitely out because international travel means 14 days of quarantine wherever you go and yeah. 14 days of quarantine when you come home. So that's out. It's impossible. So to that's do, one. Yeah. Yeah. Second issue is our patient load. What you sort of partly referred to is something what we are dreading is when we restart our operating list because we've suddenly wiped out two months from our calendar yeah. and we were overloaded anyway. So all our elective surgeries are going to be a big problem. Actually, if you, if I were to tell you, one of our sister institutes in Rotak, which is also a postgraduate institute, yeah. There's been a public interest litigation against the surgeries which were electively 
canceled there. In, it's now in the Supreme Court that why did you cancel it? The patient wants to take the risk, let them do it, but don't cancel surgery. So we don't know where it's yeah. going because it's more of a political sort of uh, fallout of things which is going to happen. And, and sometimes, I think it, no. Yeah, I was going to say, and again, it becomes even more uh, difficult when they say, listen, you have a whole ward that's sat empty because, you know, and you've, you've deprived other people who needed surgery. You know, you can see the argument that people would build in saying, you've, you've built something that no one came to. Uh, you, you didn't need it. And now we want care. You know, I can see exactly how that storyline could play out. It's happened in, in, in Canada too, right? Many, many um, healthcare um, systems were built up ready for the surge. The surge never happened. And so that's been the, the big challenge. And even, I mean, an interesting thing, uh, during the lockdown phase, now we, we started getting about nine, 10 cases every day since mm. the traffic's moving. But when the traffic was not moving, our A&E department was seeing a totally different kind of accident. We only had falls from roofs and septic cases. Yes. And the numbers of fractures of calcaneus and spine just improved. And surprisingly, as my my one of my residents was talking with us over a cup of coffee, my wife pointed out 75% of the cases were kids. Wow. The emergency trauma. They were just kids, not going to school, having nothing to do, running around in the homes and jumping, falling from stairs, falling from trees. 70% of the cases for three weeks were only kids. Wow. So this was something very different, which we noticed. Right. It, it's, a, it's a very interesting time because, because of this sort of stoppage of life, you've seen everything change. Um, and, and you get a, a sense of, well, maybe non-operative treatment should be more optimized. Maybe, you know, what if we had policies that would limit, um, you know, road traffic congestion? Uh, what, you know, what would that do to trauma? I mean, you know better than anyone, Wendy. We've talked about, you know, the global stories and you've been involved in big programs with us like Enormous where we looked at road traffic safety. What COVID accomplished in 12 weeks, 10 years of the decade of road traffic safety couldn't accomplish, right? With all the measures of helmet use and, you know, stop speeding and all these primary, they couldn't, they, they couldn't even get a dent into mortality from road traffic accident. In 12 weeks, you saw what one policy decision did in completely erasing major, major mortality from trauma because they, they, the streets became empty. Now, that's not practical, but it just shows you how powerful some of these lessons can be when you learn about uh, when these things happen you know because you know unfortunately they happen and you learn from them one of our orthopedic uh, senior guys made a tongue-in-cheek remark that yeah. the total number of covid deaths in india hmm. is about you know a thousand but yeah. that's the number of deaths we get from road traffic accidents every three weeks so yeah. you know how many people have not died because of staying at home it's, right. not, it's nothing compared to what the total number of deaths in india has been so it's and a I, it's, oh, a it's huge big it's a big change the i mean quality has changed all over I india i can't even imagine i mean no longer yeah 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 so what does that mean again in terms of as things start reopening is there a sense in your mind of of, um, uh, are you more? Are you going to be a little bit dismayed by things going back to normal again? Because going back to normal in many ways means 
that all of these other things that were big problems reemerge again, right? Road traffic accidents are going to reemerge at a different level. Uh, pollution's going to go up. You know, I just you know more fractures, even greater number of you know child deaths from mortality from all kinds of you know road traffic injuries. I mean, they're very vulnerable as travel as as you know. Is there an element of you that feels a little bit concerned about yeah, going back to the cool. old ways? Yeah, we are a bit concerned, but uh, I mean that's inevitable. Life will go on. We cannot shut it down. And uh, as uh, we we, can, we hear the U.S. president talks about everything, it's uh, livelihood versus uh, sort of uh, life. And yeah. even India, it's much more so because we do not have, for uh, about more than half the population, we don't have a social security net for them to fall back on. So it's what you earn today, you eat today. So yeah. I I know from for example that I go. I mean, we are building a house. So the laborers say, no, sir, we'll stay here. We won't go back to our home places 500 miles away because at least we are fed. We know what's happening and it'll pass. And some of them were cynical about it. We've gone through worse things. I know so many of my relatives who died of other infections. Right. Yeah, it's okay for us. That's one attitude. The Actually speaking very honestly, uh, there was a reference to a flu in 1968 which killed a few million people even in India. And right. I asked my, you know, my uncles and aunts who were, you know, old enough at that, they had not heard of it. Really? And look, this coronavirus thing, it's on everybody's newspapers, everybody's yeah. Facebook, everybody everywhere on the TV. And yeah. it's sort of more of a overkill. Uh, I'm not saying it's wrong, but every day harping on the same thing is putting people into a different kind of mindset altogether which itself is not too good yeah and i think the big difference between now and let's say 50 years ago is social media social media and the breaking news psychology of every minor detail is a breaking news cycle i think has led to this information epidemic we've talked about it a bit already and we've done some research on it but i can tell you mandeep it's been an overwhelming uh, amount of information in a very short period of time and i think most of us are just fundamentally mentally fatigued from all of it. And uh, getting away is not a bad thing once in a while. I do agree on that. The mass migration happened because of the scare. Actually yeah. speaking, if, you, if we put our uh, facts together, we will realize that if those guys who migrated had been told, don't worry about it, stay here, there's no lockdown, go on working, and they yeah. haven't moved, the infection rate, which we are going to see in two weeks in their home states, yeah would have been much much lower i think you're absolutely so right. people are talking about the second wave all over the world we in india have probably created our own second wave because we've moved people from place a to b and there are now reports coming up that there are two states especially Odisha and uh, uh, uttar pradesh where the spike is coming up and this spike they're documenting only in the people who have moved from one state to the other wow so that's wow. the that's powerful. Well, we're going to keep in touch with you, as you know, and we're hoping also that uh, I hope the, uh, you know, I, I'm assuming the IOCON this year in uh, Indian Orthopedic Association meeting in December at this yeah. point has been postponed. Do you have any um, available information about how that meeting may or may not uh, occur? Yeah, we do. Fingers crossed, probably postponed. Okay. Um, we we, we've converted a couple of our, you know, smaller conferences of the speciality organizations into virtual okay. events, but we don't know. IOCON okay. may not happen. 
Because okay. not only is it that people are finding it difficult to travel, there may not be a permission to get so many people together. Right. And uh, what the world is now in India, especially looking at is a hybrid complex, uh, sort of a conference. So okay. let's say if you've got faculty, big names, one from Chandigarh, one from Mumbai, yeah. you could have a sort of a web-based thing and have 40, 50 delegates only in Chandigarh with a local moderator and a lecture being held by, if Mohit speaks in Mumbai, the rest yeah. of us will moderate lecture in small areas. So that is one aspect we are looking oh, at. That's interesting. That's very interesting. Okay, so that's actually that's nice because you, get, because you get a little bit of, yeah, because you get a little bit of like group, you, you get a small group together, at least that there's yeah. a small group session, but many of those small groups that are happening live or interacting and sharing would be an interesting, that is definitely an interesting hybrid. Because right now everything is just webinar based, webinar based. Um, and I, I'm curious in some ways, I, I wonder how effective you find these. I mean, you're giving lots of these lectures. I know you're sitting on many of these panels. What do you think truly is the, um, effect of these are, 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 I mean, clearly, I don't believe you think they're as effective as in person, but where do you think their value truly lies when you have a webinar lecture series? Uh, I'm not so sure. I think initially it, uh, it was more of a trend and a fashion and yeah. people enjoyed it. And uh, they went on to their, you know, cell phones and their iPads and they listened to it. And I've talked to now what I'm doing I, every day. I'm sharing something with my residents and I'm getting the responses. Yeah. So my interaction with them is becoming more personal rather than, you know, seeing them once a day, two residents a day. I can talk to all 35 of them on yeah. my group. Uh, that is one way of looking at it. But then yes. their questions uh, are very different. Ha I, mean, I, have, I will have to conduct a exit examination within two weeks. And I may not have patience for my residents to demonstrate the diseases on so we'll have to do it on dummies or models or volunteers so it's yeah. an entirely different concept so yeah i mean yeah webinars are okay but it's not the real thing yeah i think you're right i think many of us are looking forward to getting back to some of those old ways because i mean as much as i've learned that this is an extremely efficient tool for many many reasons uh, it gets people connected when there's no other option. Nothing will ever replace um, the interest and focus that you have with an in-person meeting and interaction with someone. Because they're just things, even on video, that still take away from the human communication component. So I am looking forward to being able to see you face-to-face -face soon, um, but only when hopefully uh, we're all in a much better place in this world, Mandeep. But thank you so I much for your time. You.